Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hachizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm talking to Professor Lawrence Goldman about a very, very interesting book called Victorians and Numbers, Statistics and Society in 19th Century Britain, which was published by Oxford University Press in this year, 2023. Dr. Lawrence Goldman is uh, is now Emeritus Fellow of St. Peter's College, Oxford, and Senior Fellow at uh, Kinder Institute for Constitutional Democracy at the University of Missouri. Uh, Lawrence, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. Um, before we start talking about the book, it would be great if you could briefly introduce yourself to our listeners and uh, tell us about your your background and how the idea of this book came about, Victorians and Numbers, Statistics and Society in the 19th Century Britain. Oh, well, thank you very much indeed. Um, the book really has been uh, uh, in production for the whole of my career. Uh, I was an undergraduate at Cambridge and then a postgraduate there, um, although I taught for 30 years in Oxford and was later the director of the Institute of Historical Research in the University of London. Um, but this idea began very, very early on in my research, uh, really in the first weeks when I became interested in the sudden accession of data uh, in a numerical form uh, in early 19th century Britain. I'd started out wanting to understand, if you like, what the British knew about the Industrial Revolution and the remarkable transformations in their society from the late 18th century onwards, the origins, we might say, of modernity. Um, And I was looking at social investigators, people who in various ways tried to measure the changes, to measure uh, living standards, to measure poverty, to measure production and output and so forth. And I became interested in the development of the numerical approach to all of those things, which I began to realize was new. But I have to be honest and say that although I published several articles and pieces associated with these ideas uh, earlier in my career, the book itself took about 40 years of thinking uh, and planning, um, but I eventually had the time at the end of my career, once I, I retired, as it were, to sit down and write it, uh, uh, which was a great pleasure, in fact. And um, let, let's talk about the original statistics. In your book, you start by talking about political arithmetic, and I must say I've never heard of that. 
which which I found it fascinating, political arithmetic in Britain. And you also talk about the statistics in German states in the 17th and 18th century. Can you please um, expand on these two areas? Mm. Well, what I discovered as well, just as as you, was that there was a longer tradition to putting numbers to uh, social processes and uh, social changes, uh, really in early modern Northwest Europe. Um, in Britain, uh, from the late 17th century, uh, the era of the King Charles II, uh, so the 1660s and 1670s, you began to see uh, the development of the dynamic study really of demography. Uh, attempts were made to calculate not only the, the size of the British population, but its growth rates. Um, and that was the origins really of a, a numerical approach to social questions, at least uh, in uh, the European tradition. Now, at the same time, uh, in the German states, there was something similar, though, though slightly different, um, what the Germans called statistique. And the word statistics comes from that. And uh, statistique comes from the German word stadt uh, for state. Um, and in that respect, uh, you have a slightly different tradition where um, German uh, progenitors of statistique were interested in measuring uh, certain uh, fixed quantities, as it were, in their society, uh, the degree of men under arms in their armies, uh, the output of, of goods, uh, the size of their population, uh, the, the weight of the wheat or barley crop year by year. Um, Historians have tended to argue that though the two traditions are similar, uh, they differ in that the British approach was more mathematical and was looking for dynamic uh, developments in society, particularly interested in the mathematics of the rates of change in social process. So it wasn't just a question of measuring the population at any rate or, or at any moment in time. There was a greater interest in trying to understand rates of change, uh, not only overall, but in different sectors of the population. Um, and so historians have tended to emphasize, as it were, these these two sets uh, of approaches uh, and made something of their differences. Actually, in my book, I suggest that they're perhaps closer than we've realized. And whether it's the more state-oriented approach uh, in Germany or the more dynamic mathematical approach in Britain, nevertheless, what you're seeing in the 17th and early 18th century is an attempt to systematically study society, perhaps for the first time. Mm. And, and uh, the, the, the British statistical movement that you talk about in 1830s, 20s and 30s is, is, is an attempt to, to study society in England. Am I right? Yes, absolutely. Um, and what I think happens is that there is a, a, a remarkable um, expansion in the amount of data available to uh, British analysts um, from the late 18th century onwards. As Britain begins to industrialize, as it becomes a recognizably modern society, as demographically uh, it starts to grow at an unparalleled uh, rate of change, um, so people become interested in this 
data um, uh, because they want to try to understand those changes. Uh, they're also rather proud of them. So there's an element of a kind of patriotism there so that, as it were, uh, uh, these become uh, uh, ways of studying the progress of the nation, which is the title of, of a book that appeared in the 1830s, uh, literally uh, uh, hymning and, and, and praising uh, the growth and development in Britain. But you get this new access of masses of data. Uh, it's about poverty. Uh, it's about um, industrial production. It's about agricultural production, it's about wage rates and so forth. Um, and for the first time, uh, there is a sense that this, this kind of data is really important to social policy and the regulation of social change by the state. Um, uh, although it would be fair to say that 18th century government in Britain had also attempted to, to uh, analyze data. Um, really in the early 19th century, particularly from the 1820s, you can see a concerted effort as there is a sense of a need for institutional change to, to catch up with these um, developments, uh, to collect data, and to begin to analyze it. And that works at the state level, as uh, the British state uh, in the early 1830s starts to uh, set up royal commissions of inquiry uh, and literally send out commissioners to count uh, all sorts of social processes. They're interested in industrial employment, in regulating the workplace, in the factory and the mills and the mines. They're interested in problems of poverty and the poor law, how you, you deal with pauperism. Um, and at the same time, uh, as the state is interested, you find the development of a kind of intellectual project by uh, people uh, not quite professional yet, people interested in social science. Uh, they're not sociologists, they don't live in universities, uh, they're not necessarily employed in large numbers by government. Many of them just have a genuine intellectual interest in trying to understand uh, the remarkable changes that have gone on in their lives. And so, uh, you get the development in the 1830s uh, of uh, statistical societies, uh, which are formed to collect data, uh, to analyze it, to discuss it, uh, as it were, to build a new intellectual discipline uh, related to these changes, analytical in its formation, and trying to put a number on everything. Uh, there was a sense in which if the British, if anyone was to understand social dynamics, it had to be numerically rather than uh, qualitatively. Uh, uh, and as you mentioned, it's quite amazing how much info there's this kind of maybe we can say data revolution there. I mean, we, we tend to think of it as a 21st century phenomenon, but I've been reading a couple of books. There was another book about the history of infographics, and it's quite amazing how even visually data was presented in the 19th century. And uh, you, you talked about statistical societies. There are two statistical societies that you discuss in your book. The first one is the Statistical Society of London, and the second one is uh, Manchester Society. Uh, so can you talk about these two societies and tell us how they use data? What was their policy? or the way they, they, they envisioned the usage of data and how they differed from one another in their um, 
maybe in their orientation towards data on how they use yeah. data. Yes, I think that's that's very interesting and important. Um, uh, historians uh, hitherto, uh, and in no sense is this a critical remark, have tended to take the statistical movement uh, as one thing, uh, whether in government or in these societies, and whether in London or Manchester or Glasgow or Liverpool, where there were uh, a variety of these statistical societies, historians have tended to write about a statistical movement. Um, uh, when I uh, began to research uh, their histories, I began to understand that uh, this was uh, not one movement, but several different movements with, with different agendas. Uh, the data revolution of the 1830s, as you rightly put it, was uh, affecting many different areas of uh, public uh, and indeed business and private life. Uh, and it was possible to take quite different approaches uh, to ask different questions of it. And so what the book does is, is talk about a movement, but it ties it tries to anatomize it into different uh, organizations and different projects. So if we start in London, uh, the Statistical Society of London was founded in 1834 and it is now the Royal Statistical Society. And in a way, its history shows the complex development of statistics uh, over uh, not just the 19th century, but the 20th century as well. It was originally founded by some very eminent natural scientists, some of the genuinely leading figures in 19th century British science, people like William Hewell, uh, one of the great figures uh, in 19th century science, master of Trinity College, Cambridge. In fact, the, the man who coined the term scientist, uh, Thomas Robert Malthus, uh, the great political economist. Uh, Richard Jones, another very interesting figure in the history of economics. Charles Babbage, uh, the great mathematician, and his friend and collaborator, John Herschel, uh, the great astronomer. And these men uh, and others around them had the idea of forming a society that would use numbers intellectually and academically to sustain new kinds of empirical natural science. They were all committed to using numbers in science uh, to make science a more rigorous and calculable discipline. Um, and the origins, in fact, of the Statistical Society of London lie very much with this network of, of, of scientists. Uh, one historian uh, has called it the Cambridge Network because they were all associated through Cambridge University where they'd studied or where they were, were teaching. On the other hand, when that society uh, was set up in London, uh, something very interesting happened that shows another dimension to this data revolution of the 1830s. The society rapidly developed. It was very successful, but it attracted a quite different type of person. It attracted politicians. It attracted civil servants. It attracted professionals, lawyers, doctors, physicians, and so forth, who were interested in numbers 
for for quite different utilitarian purposes uh, who were interested in numbers uh, for social administration for the better regulation of of society as as evidence in support of social reform and new legislation and so forth um, and these these social statisticians we might call them had a very practical view of um, uh, what as it were uh, they might do with the new data that was now available. Um, and it's worth just saying that if you look at the Royal Statistical Society today uh, and uh, the Statistical Society of London transformed into the Royal Statistical Society in 1887, it is in fact now a professional body for mathematical statisticians, uh, people, uh, as it were, who treat mathema uh, who treat statistics very much as a branch of mathematics um, and are interested in all the mathematical refinements of statistics, who treat it, if you like, uh, as a body of knowledge and as a set of practices which can be applied. Uh, and so it's been, as it were, uh, uh, several different things in its history. Meanwhile, if you look to Manchester, the Manchester Statistical Society actually slightly predated the London Society. It was founded in 1833 and it was founded by very different kinds of people for very different reasons. Uh, it was founded by people who were very much involved in business. Manchester was then really the great shock city of the early industrial revolution. Visitors from all over the world went to Manchester to see the new factories, uh, the new technologies. In particular, it was the, the centre of the steam-driven cotton textile spinning industry, where cotton was spun into yarn and then woven into cloth. Um, and fortunes were made uh, in the textile industry and in the associated uh, um, uh, businesses around it. Um, and these men were much more interested in the statistics of business, the statistics of production, in, in trying, if you like, to put a number on the remarkable technological transformation of which they were part. They were justly proud of the transformation of the economy that Manchester represented. And for them, a statistical society would count bales of cotton. Uh, it, would, it would study flows of money into and out of uh, various various industries. Uh, it would count the, the yards, the metres of cloth uh, that were being produced. And it had another um, uh, motive, you might say, uh, again, as compared with an intellectual project by scientists and as compared with a, a social administrative project by politicians and professionals uh, in the capital city, London. Um when you were explaining, when you were responding to this question, you uh, you mentioned a lot of names, and I I wish we just had enough time to talk about all of them. But unfortunately, we are pressed for time. But I do ask you about some of these people. So before that, uh, so and partly that's the reason what you mentioned that Manchester Society was more a political pressure group than a society mm -hmm. that was, uh, let's say, after in advancement of science or statistics. Let's say in this case. Mm. Yes, yes, exactly. I mean, if we dig a bit deeper, I suppose there are two really very interesting and, and important things to be said about the Manchester Statistical Society. Um, 
I don't think, to be honest, it's to be taken uh, as, as if you like, a, a society of people interested in numbers. Really, it's a society of people with a political agenda. And I draw uh, two points to the attention of listeners. The first is this. They, these people were socially and politically um, uh, underrepresented, we might say, in the corridors of power of Britain in the 1830s. Britain was still a society um, governed by an aristocracy, an aristocracy of the land, and to some extent also a mercantile class based in London. Um, industry was yet to fully represent itself uh, in the nation's uh, legislative chamber, in parliament, um, and in government more generally. And industrialists in Manchester felt that they lacked um, the respect and really the authority and power that now was due to them as the progenitors of, you know, a new way of, of living, being and producing. Um, and so the Manchester Statistical Society uh, was very much associated with the great uh, and indeed radical idea of free trade. Uh, this was a way of improving the economic uh, possibilities of the businesses in Manchester. Free trade would expand their market uh, and assist them in selling uh, their textiles around the world. Um, but it was also an attack upon uh, various economic policies that had been uh, introduced by a landed parliament, a parliament of landholders, to protect their agricultural interests. Uh, and so the free trading associations of the Manchester society mark it out as politically liberal, indeed radical, uh, and seeking, if you like, to overturn uh, the, the power relations that had existed in British society for generations. That's one part of it. But there's another dynamic here as well, a religious dynamic, uh, which has, I think, not been fully uh, grasped. And that is that these men were very largely the founders of the Manchester Society, uh, Unitarians. Now, this takes us deep into religious history in Britain. Uh, uh, they were part of what we call nonconformity. They were not conformists with the national church. They were Protestants. Uh, but since the 17th century, a whole host of uh, dissenting uh, communities had grown up. Baptists, uh, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, Methodists, Unitarians, and so forth, um, who were not members of the National Church and had built their own religious communities, particularly in the north of England. Now, Unitarianism um, uh, is associated with, uh, if you like, a more intellectual class of provincial uh, um, uh, figure, um, uh, people like these entrepreneurs or uh, local men of letters and so forth tended to be Unitarians. It was very strong in Manchester. And if you look at the, the founders, there are 14 founders of the Manchester Statistical Society. Uh, at least 11 of them are Unitarians. It's not always very clear exactly what uh, religious denomination people belong to uh, in this period, but certainly 11 of the 14 were. And this also is a political project, because Britain in the early 19th century had 
a variety of laws and customs in place which limited the civil rights of people who were not members of the National Anglican Church, just as these nonconformists were not. And so uh, a second element of their radicalism was that as Unitarians, uh, they wanted to uh, break the exclusivism of the British state, which in various ways um, excluded uh, people who were not members of the national church. For example, uh, they and their sons could not go to Oxford and Cambridge universities uh, without assenting to the doctrines of the national Anglican church. And this was something that they strongly opposed. And so their, their religious and their business and provincial identities all came together and in my view, uh, if you take them all together, that makes the Manchester Statistical Society less uh, a, a, an intellectual body and much more of a political pressure group. And earlier you talked, uh, you, you mentioned Charles Babbage, who is a very important figure in your book, and you talk about his role in the in the in the statistics movement and also his contribution to statistics. Can you tell us a little more about him? Yes, um, I hadn't ever imagined that Babbage would em would emerge as the hero of my research. Yeah, uh, to me it was a surprise as well. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, that wasn't what I uh, I had associated Babbage with. And it, it, it's a point about the way one, one works over a lifetime. When I first came to this subject, I was interested in other figures in the movement. And it was only later, largely, I think, because other scholars had written about Babbage and they'd opened my eyes to really his central role uh, in this whole epic, this whole movement. Now, from the beginning, one needs to explain that Charles Babbage uh, is a remarkable figure in the history of science and technology, uh, educated at Cambridge. He held for 11 years the Lucasian Chair of Mathematics in Cambridge University. That's the chair that Isaac Newton had held in the 17th century. It's the chair that Stephen Hawking held uh, when he was uh, leading studies in cosmology in, in Cambridge. Um, so he's an extremely accomplished and eminent mathematician. Um, but he's most famous to us because so much of his life, decades of his life, was spent trying to build and design uh, a mechanical computer. Um, technologists, historians of technology look back to his designs and indeed his, his actual models of a mechanical computer in awe because they say the, the architecture of what he was um, uh, trying to build uh, is in fact the architecture of a, a modern uh, electronic digital computer. Um, but he was trying to do it with cogs and wheels rather than with um, uh, microprocessors. Um, and uh, if you want to know more about Babbage, you can go to the Science Museum in London, in, in London, South Kensington, and you can see uh, the, 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 the small difference engine, as he called it, that he made in the 1830s. Uh, which is, he thought, just the beginning of a project. Sadly, uh, he never was able to build the analytical engine, which would have been on a much greater scale. Um, he never got the funding from government that he hoped he would get to make that possible. But he left many designs, and he's really seen as the father of computing. 
Uh, and I accepted that before realizing much later in my research that Babbage uh, 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 was much more central to the statistical movement than I'd realized. He himself later in life saw it as one of his great achievements. Um, he it was who founded, if anyone founded, the Statistical Society of London. Um, in Cambridge and in London, he was the, the, the master of ceremonies. He brought people together. Uh, the society was actually founded uh, in his front room, his living room in his London house uh, in February of 1834. And he was chairman of its very first inaugural meeting when more than 300 people uh, came on a Saturday afternoon to inaugurate this new society. Uh, Babbage I would argue, was interested not just in, in the machines, if you like, to, to crunch numbers, but in numbers generally. He was fascinated uh, with, if you like, the mathematics of numbers, of course, but also with what you could do with numbers to explain society. He was himself an economist. He was himself a student of technology. He published a remarkable book in the early 1830s on the new technologies of the Industrial Revolution. He traveled around the North Country of Britain, where the new industrial cities were growing up, places like Manchester, Birmingham, uh, Newcastle upon Tyne, and so forth, Glasgow, uh, meeting people, noting down how work was now being organized, um, in new factories and so forth, analysing it and analysing it numerically. Uh, and so this is a man for whom numbers offer ways of understanding the world in new ways. And, and his, his machines, his calculating engines, as they were called, were designed to crunch numbers as we would today. Um, it, remarkably, he and people around him uh, might almost be said to have understood the need for supercomputers. Um, they understood that there would come a time in the development of science when our capacity to process vast amounts of data would slow us down because we just didn't have that capacity. And he was building, as I could now understand, the calculating engine, uh, not just as a curiosity, not just to prove uh, that you could, as it were, uh, make calculations by machines, but actually to build machines that would make the progress of science all the easier, because he understood that in the end, science depends upon, upon numbers and calculations and data on a massive scale, uh, and something was going to be required to make the analysis of all this data possible. So he's a remarkably prescient, modern figure. Um, and he's at the heart of the statistical movement. Uh, of course, he's very unique. I, I don't think anyone else, uh, even the, the, the brilliant scientists who were his friends, quite understood uh, the statistical movement in the way that Babbage did. Um, but for Babbage, what was happening in the 1830s was very exciting. And I, I would argue that the, 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 the construction of the calculating engines and the designs later of the, the more powerful analytical engine are all about trying to build capacity to make multiple calculations dealing with very large quantities of data in ways that everyone listening will now recognize as, as an integral part uh, of the way we now uh, uh, do science and indeed analyze our world. 
uh, this sounds very modern. So it's quite amazing how they thought about these things, you know, back in the uh, in the 19th century. Um, apart from that figure, you know, I'm, I'm really interested myself in the history of economics. And there was another character whom I'd never heard of, Richard Jones. And you talk about him and the famous article, essay he wrote called Essay on Distribution of Wealth and on the Sources of Taxation. And then you go on to say that even uh, that essay even influenced Karl Marx. So can you tell us about him and his essay and how it influenced uh, Karl Marx there? Yes, um, uh, Marx thought he was a, a tremendous economist. In uh, 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 Marx's um, uh, very long study, Theories of, of uh, Surplus Value, he wrote extensively uh, about Jones. And what he admired about Jones was his uh, empiricism, his inductivism, um, and his methodological opposition, Jones's methodological opposition to the dominant school of political economy and the dominant methodology, uh, Ricardian deductivism. Let me try and explain all of this. Um, in the 1820s and the 1830s, at the point that we're, we're talking about, um, the dominant school of, of, of economics uh, in Britain um, and the Anglophone world um, was, the, was the, the economics really of David Ricardo, uh, a, a great economist and a deductivist who had taken the body of economic thoughts since Adam Smith and turned it into uh, a relatively few set of axioms uh, which could be deduced, as it were, uh, without the need for evidence. Uh, these were axioms based upon human behavior. Uh, they were universal. Humans always behaved in this manner. They always bought in the cheapest market and sold in the dearest market and so forth. Um, and if you understood these, these fundamental universal truths of economic behavior, well, there you are. Bob's your uncle, as we say. You've got the new discipline of economics. But Jones was an inductivist, and so indeed were all of these great scientists, Herschel, Babbage, Huell, uh, and so forth. They were all inductivists. They, they disagreed with the idea uh, that science was uh, uh, really a, a, a sequence of deductions from fundamental axioms from which you start. Um, they believed in the collection of evidence. And Jones not only believed that you had to, as it were, collect evidence and see exactly how economic behavior uh, functioned. He, of course, also was not a universalist. Uh, he he argued in his essay on the distribution of, of wealth and the sources of taxation, which was published in uh, the early 1830s. He argued that, of course, all over the world, economic systems are different. Uh, rent, he divided into five different categories, uh, noting how the, the conception of rent differed all over the globe. Uh, and he was very much against Ricardian orthodoxy, which had tried to formulate economics on the basis of uh, these very simple axioms, uh, which were held to be universal. Um, now, the sad thing about Jones is this, that volume that we're discussing, his, his essay on the distribution of wealth, was all really he ever published, although his close friend William Hewell did produce a volume of his essays uh, after his death in the late 1850s. Uh, Jones was supposed to spearhead a revolution in economics, to make it, as it were, a, a discipline that, that actually engaged with the way communities 
functioned rather than uh, a, a deductive uh, discipline uh, based upon these universal truths. But he never did. Uh, he himself was drawn into governance, um, into what uh, we call the charity commission. He was a church commissioner. He was involved in the administration of the church and of charities in Britain uh, for the rest of his life. And he never finished uh, his academic project. But when Marx came to political economy uh, after coming, as it were, to Britain at the end of the 1840s, and he began to write the series of works uh, that became Capital, uh, published at the end of the 1850s. Marx discovered Jones's writing and thought of him as really the most superior of all the English economists, precisely because uh, Jones had wanted to, to understand actually existing forms of economic life rather than uh, Ricardian orthodoxies about the way everybody seemingly behaved. And so Marx was influenced by him, took a lot of his uh, ideas on, on rent from Jones. And if you read uh, Marx's writings from the 1850s, uh, Jones is something of a hero to him. Um, uh, uh, Marx, of course, himself admitted that his great oeuvre of socialist economics depended upon all the work that had gone on um, uh, hitherto in Britain in the political economy that the British had developed, even though, of course, he disagreed with it. Uh, they provided the data and the ideas which he, he fed upon later. Um, and it's very interesting that in the preface to Capital itself, Marx pays great homage to all the empirical data gatherers in the British statistical movement. He talks about the factory inspectors, the societies, the government departments and so forth, which had built up bodies of numerical data, which he was enabled to use when he wrote Capital. Uh, and he was generous because without that data, he wouldn't have been able to analyze uh, industrial capitalism in the way that he did. And there is another character you talk about who whose ideas were actually very, very controversial back then. Uh, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it, so you, <laughs> I will leave it to you to correct me. Adolf uh, Quetelet, if I'm not mistaken. So how were his ideas quite contrary to the predominant Victorian uh, zeitgeist and their ideas about moral responsibility? Yes, uh, Adolf Quetelet. Uh, yeah. uh, but but you did well. Uh, now, Etale is, is 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 a forgotten figure. Um, but you know, if you'd lived in Britain in the 1830s and the 1840s, if you were part of this world uh, we're describing, or uh, just a well-read person, you would have heard of Ketele, uh, not least because, as you've suggested, uh, he was a controversial figure. His ideas were controversial. Um, Ketelet was a Belgian, in fact, although in the course of his life, uh, Belgium, the Low Countries, went through many different political formations. But he was a Belgian. He was based in Brussels. He was a mathematician and an astronomer. And like many of these figures that we're discussing, he then became interested in applying numerical methods uh, and looking for data at a social level. He became what we might call a social scientist. And in 1835, he he produced possibly, we might say, the first great 
classic in the history of of sociology. It would be an interesting debate uh, as to what else we might include under that title. Um, the 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 book published in French was entitled Sur l'homme et le développement de ses facultés, and that means on man and the development of his faculties. And it was a, 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 a synthesis of the new numerical data as it might explain uh, humans, uh, the way they were, the way they interacted, their communities in society. And he built up a composite picture of men and women um, from uh, anthropometry, the, the study of, of bodies, uh, you know, the study of head sizes, the study of the length of arms, uh, the length of our legs and so forth, all that sort of very basic data, all the way up to sophisticated analysis of people living in modern societies. Uh, and the book was, of course, translated into English. But more than that, uh, Adolf Ketelet was a very close friend of the people we've been discussing, uh, Babbage, uh, Huell. Uh, Herschel, uh, Malthus. Um, he travelled to Britain, to Cambridge, to London. They visited him in Brussels uh, later. Um, he was part of this circle. Indeed, uh, I often thought that I should have put his picture on the cover, as well as the, the other pictures of some of these figures who are on the cover of the book, because he's really an, an honorary part of the British statistical movement. Indeed, these people look to him as the father figure. He, he was the great social statistician uh, of the early 19th century. Now, as you rightly say, he was controversial. And he was controversial because it seemed that really he was a determinist. Um, Victorians, as I'm sure people listening understand, believed very strongly in free will. Uh, men and women were essentially free to make their own destiny. Uh, 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 there was, as it were, no, no path that was, that was made for them from which they could not deviate. Uh, this was part of, of Christian theology, uh, in Britain at least, in the, in the early and mid-19th century, uh, that God had endowed men and women with free will uh, uh, and with the capacity to determine their own actions for which they, they had to be held responsible before God, they were responsible, if you like, for their for their moral behaviour uh, and for what they did. So a sense of personal responsibility is very important here. But Ketelet, in his um, statistical studies, particularly in those studies of recurrent phenomena as they affect humans, uh, birth rates, death rates, marriage rates, uh, the number of baptisms, uh, the number of children in education at any one time. All of these things, because they were essentially similar or, or, or could be explained um, uh, straightforwardly in terms of prevailing conditions and so forth, this made Ketelet into what many Victorians believed was a determinist. Um, and certainly there were things that he wrote that suggested that, if you like, uh, humans uh, were 
uh, uh, pre predetermined. They were programmed to behave in certain ways. The fact that uh, you could uh, project, um, you could um, um, imagine, uh, 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 you could uh, know in advance uh, how many people would commit suicide, for example, in the next six months, or how many letters would be sent uh, from the main London post office uh, next year. These things suggested to Ketterley that life could be explained through numbers, and indeed that in a way, our lives were predetermined, prefigured, um, and we were all, if you like, uh, programmed in a certain way to behave in certain ways. Now, we now understand this as what's called the law of large numbers. Uh, the larger the, the um, uh, uh, group, the survey group, the more likely you are to have very regular patterns uh, in these kinds of, of behaviours. Um, the Victorians um, objected, really, to a man who, who seemed to be writing uh, that there was no free will, that we were all slaves to some mathematical formula, uh, that we were all, if you like, uh, programmed to behave in certain ways, uh, that, if you like, society worked according to clockwork rather than being an aggregation of individual wills allowing each of us still to have control over the particular ways we behaved. So Ketterley was controversial, uh, but he was also a very influential figure, uh, not only in the statistical movement, but also in the history of sociology. And you can trace his influence in some of the pioneer sociologists, uh, people like August Comte in France, Emil Durkheim later in the in the 19th century uh, and onwards. Sadly, he's he's not he's not a name that people uh, often uh, 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 associate with uh, these movements. Indeed, he's largely forgotten. But he was a close friend of of the people I was writing about. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Um, I have a friend, a colleague of mine who is very big on the statistics. And uh, I remember I came across this famous quote by, or a quote that is attributed to Disraeli, which, which says there are three kinds of lies, lies, damned lies in the statistics. <laughs> and, and it kind of you know, riled him up. But anyway, mm. you in the book, uh, another part of the book that I really liked was, so you talk about the rise of statistics, the rise of these societies, but also, and how some of these big names, you know, envisage the use of data and the statistics. But you also talk about the major oppositions to statistics. And you talk about literary figures such as 
Charles Dickens, you know, who kind of satirized that in his works. Uh, I'm, I'm keen to know, you, you talk about a number of people there, but I'll leave it up to you to talk about some of them and tell us what the major oppositions were to this new uh, use of numbers, to statistics in the Victorian era. And I'm also really interested to know how men of letters uh, satirized or ridiculed statistics in their works. Mm. Yes, it's an important theme in the book, and it's a very important theme in Victorian culture. Uh, sometimes in writing this book, I felt that I was, I was, I was giving the other side of a debate. Uh, if you if you read a lot of Victorian cultural history as it's written, actually. Uh, the people that uh, we focus on are people like Dickens, Charles Dickens, the novelist, Thomas Carlyle, the essayist and moralist, John Ruskin, uh, the art critic who became a social critic. They dominate uh, discussion of, if you like, Victorian culture and Victorian ideas. And sometimes in writing this book, I felt what I was trying to do was put the other side because uh, they were very hostile to the statisticians, as we might say, whereas I'm much more appreciative, if you like, uh, of the role that the uh, statistical movement uh, was trying to play in, in, in social betterment and social improvement. Um, why did they oppose statistics and the growing use of numerical data? Actually, I think uh, listeners will will understand this intuitively from their own lives, since it's very common in in, in our age, uh, just as in the 1840s and 50s, uh, to be sceptical uh, about the use of numbers and about the reductivism that comes when when people and their behaviours, their needs, their, their wants, their loves, their hopes are turned into uh, a set of data and indeed uh, into uh, just a numerical um, uh, key. Uh, uh, what I think these uh, Victorians were, were, were rebelling against when they came up against the statistical movement was this uh, reductivism that, that that turns the complexity of human life, with all its 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 inconsistencies, um, into a, a reified uh, sort of set of figures, a row, a column uh, of numbers, um, and misses therefore the humanity uh, that makes us all individual and different, uh, and that is, if you like, dignifies and makes life uh, noble and 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 worth living. Um, anyone who's ever come across Charles Dickens knows that Dickens um, um, uh, uh, gloried in the complexity of human nature and the variety of human beings. I mean, work your way through Dickens' novels and there's a cornucopia of humans and human behaviours. Uh, it's it's a human comedy on a vast scale. Uh, and we marvel at the, the, the remarkable characters that he was able to dream up. Um, and so for someone like Dickens, if you put a number on it and you generalise and you say, well, you know, everyone fits into one of these half a dozen categories, that that I think goes against, at a very deep spiritual level, the essence of his view of life. And that would go for someone like uh, Thomas Carlyle as well, who was 
um, very skeptical of the idea of improvement, that you could somehow improve society and improve humans in it. Uh, the sort of character who believed that, you know, fundamentally, we are all fallen creatures, we're all flawed in moral and other ways. Um, and the idea that uh, you could apply numbers and data and analysis to the improvement of human institutions and humans themselves, he would find uh, a matter of, of, of great humor, but also a tragic mistake, uh, because it, it somehow believes that it's possible to uh, change human nature for the better. And uh, Carlyle was a, was a sort of conservative pessimist who, who didn't believe in these things. And so, if you like, it, it's a distinction you might say, between heart and head. Many Victorian writers uh, were focused on the heart, on the spirit, uh, on, as it were, those things that make us individual, those those things that can't be turned into words, let alone numbers, uh, all the great emotions and feelings of our lives. Uh, and the statistical movement, they thought, uh, was heavily uh, um, um, uh, 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 distorting of those things. Uh, and in particular, it was a species of utilitarianism, uh, the, the approach to society that says that the greatest happiness of the greatest number should be our aim, uh, that if you like, in our social policies, one size should fit all, we should find out what is uh, best best for the majority and employ uh, that policy, that idea. Um, and for those who, for whatever reason, it doesn't actually work well, uh, that's their problem, if you like. Uh, they disliked a utilitarian approach uh, to uh, Victorian society. They praised individualism and they feared that numbers would be used against that individualism. And uh, there was a famous book, again, in Victorian era, The History of Civilization in England, which really helped popularize uh, statistics, which was written by Henry Thomas Buckle. Uh, I'm, I'm really keen to know more about that book and whether the approach the author took in that book was 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 accurate or correct. Yes. Um, Henry Thomas Buckle um, wrote a book at the end of the 1850s, which was really the book of the year, we might say, in 1857. A second volume followed in 1861. But when it was published in 1857, everybody was talking about it. You know, you went to a fashionable dinner party in London and Buckle would be discussed. Um, he himself was a recluse, really, up to that point, an independent scholar, uh, a man of means, but unknown in the literary world. He'd never gone to university. Um, uh, but he, he set out to write this great historical epic, the history of civilization in England. Actually, in the two volumes that were published, he hardly got going on the history of England um, uh, uh, because he was uh, uh, as interested in laying a foundation for the study of history uh, as actually doing uh, historical research and writing about it. And if you read the first volume, that that foundation lies in statistics. Um, Buckle uh, was a positivist and indeed a determinist. Um, and in the first 200, 250 pages of the history of civilization in England, um, he, he writes a kind of essay on what the study of statistics now makes it possible to do as a social analyst and indeed as a historian. 
And in many ways, it's back to the ideas of Adolf Ketelet in the 1830s, uh, that now we, we know that human behavior is not random, that uh, year by year, month by month, lots of, of, of human behaviors can be plotted. Uh, there are um, very um, uh, 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 often similar frequencies for deaths and births and uh, third children and fourth children and whatever it is. Um, once you look at demography and indeed you look at uh, certain forms of uh, behavior, uh, we're back to posting of letters. They were always very fascinated by the posting of letters since the, 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 the formation of national postal services was very much part of the early and mid 19th century across Europe. Um, once you look at all of this and you see how human life is patterned, well said Buckle, now we can write scientific history. And he was very opposed to other schools of historical writing that were then dominant uh, in Britain, uh, so-called Whig history, which was very much a kind of um, praise of uh, the way Britain had developed since the 17th century uh, and was very focused on narrative forms of historical writing. Uh, Buckle was analytical, but at the foundations of that analysis was the idea that all human behavior in all periods uh, was amenable to a kind of scientific analysis based on the numerical data that could be gathered uh, about the way we lived then and indeed the way we live now. And for a time, uh, these rather simplistic ideas uh, captured uh, the British imagination. And as I say, his book was uh, uh, published, republished, reprinted, and everyone was reading it. But gradually over time, uh, serious uh, readers, serious reviewers, and indeed philosophers began to pick holes in this rather crude determinism. Um, a philosopher, uh, John Venn in Cambridge in the 1860s, uh, began the philosophical demolition of uh, Buckle's work, uh, and others simply, uh, uh, as they thought about it, began to understand that uh, the fact that, as it were, um, in any large uh, series and any large data set, uh, you see a pattern doesn't in fact mandate that, if you like, individual behavior inside that data set uh, is always the same. Uh, it is possible, if you like, uh, for us to have uh, all sorts of options that we might choose uh, for our behavior. Uh, and um, it doesn't mean that because uh, a certain number of us will commit suicide as it were, year by year, uh, rates of suicide or suicide itself are, are easily understandable and amenable to analysis, uh, the reasons why one, one would commit suicide, uh, the context in which it happens, uh, how an individual approaches it, uh, what method they use and so forth. All of these things are highly individual, even though at the end of the year, out of a very large data set, we might say that, yes, the suicide rate is, is stable or at least is growing or declining in, in a way that we can plot. Um, and, and Buckle, in a sense, was just making some rather crude observations uh, about very large numbers, rather than, if you like, analyzing the more complex human behaviors that lie behind uh, generalized um, uh, statistics. Uh, and so as people thought about this, they became 
really less 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 enamoured of the ideas. And by the 1880s, he was not widely read or widely admired. Historical thinking had had moved on in Britain. Um, I'm also keen to know more about how the reasons why socialists in the in that period were fascinated by statistics. You earlier talked about Karl Marx and uh, Richard Richard Jones. So I'm, I'm keen to know more about uh, the popularity of statistics with socialists. Yes, that that is an interesting fact. Um, as he lost credibility with, uh, if you like, uh, the British uh, intellectual elite by the 1870s and the 1880s, he remained uh, very um, popular um, uh, among the emerging uh, socialist intellectual circles, not only in Britain, but all the way uh, across uh, Europe. I was amazed to discover that Dostoevsky, uh, who was not a socialist, but nevertheless uh, a Russian intellectual, uh, Dostoevsky wrote about Buckle. And you can find references to Buckle in lots of socialist texts uh, and novels about socialists at the end of the 19th century. I think I think it's it it's because insofar as Buckle offered us an image of an ordered world in which people's behaviours follow set patterns, he seemed to legitimate the idea of socialist reform and change, um, particularly environmental change. Um, if if you change the environments in which people live, um, then it should be possible, following uh, Buckle's analysis, to change the outcomes of their their behaviour. Um, there seem to be, in the work of Ketterley and in the work of Buckle and others, a very close relationship between environmentalism, uh, uh, statistics, uh, and and reform. Um, it, it looked as if, in certain uh, environments, human behaviour human activities followed uh, certain patterns, changed the environment, and you could improve humans. Um, and so there was a sense in which uh, socialists who, of course, were committed to wholesale change of European society in the late 19th century. This is the era when the great uh, socialist parties uh, develop, um, in, notably in Germany, but in France, the British Labour Party in this country, uh, all over the developed world. Uh, this was a great theme in politics. Uh, they read Buckle uh, as offering them an image of a society precisely because that society uh, followed certain patterns which could be explained and indeed which could be projected and and envisaged in advance precisely because of that order to society it, it made socialists think that um, genuine and lasting and durable reforms were possible human human behavior could be changed and could be changed for the better. And so they they liked that deterministic element in his writing uh, because it seemed to validate the idea that a socialist future in which our behaviours change, our institutions are transformed, all of that was possible. Um, another really, really interesting part of the book was the idea of liberal internationalism of a statistical movement. Can you define what you mean by that? And then you go on to talk about how that, uh, how, how it was undermined by the growth of nationalism and also social conservatism. Yes. Um, I suppose here, what I was trying to argue, uh, what I would 
try to argue now is is that in a way the statistical movement is is no different from lots of other social and intellectual developments in the 19th century and historians generally tend to argue that if you like the 19th century is a is a is a century in in two parts um it has a kind of liberal origin and middle. If you looked at, at the European world up to the 1850s and the 1860s, um, liberal ideas, and indeed in many cases, liberals themselves are in power. That's certainly the case in Britain, for example. The great age of liberal government is really from uh, the 1830s to the 1870s. But um, in the later decades of the 19th century, um, we see a, a kind of uh, revival of, of conservative social doctrines and conservative parties. Um, and the statistical movement that I'm writing about really follows that arc, that, that pattern. Um, it, it, it was very much part of uh, the liberal movement uh, of the early and mid uh, decades of the century. Um, and then statistics becomes entwined and enmeshed in new conservative ideas at the end of the 19th century. Perhaps what we're saying is that data is malleable from all sides of the political spectrum. You can do all you like with numbers. They can prove anything you want. Um, and they are very useful uh, political weapons, uh, whether for the left or the right. Um, but statistics become entwined in this, in this political world. They are, in that sense, no different from so many other aspects of, of 19th century history. Now, to be a little more specific, if you um, had in the mid-19th century attended an international statistical congress, just think of that, you would have met many liberal environmentalists attending these uh, periodic European jamborees. Um, uh, we would understand them as academic conferences held in all the great capital cities, uh, certainly London, Paris, Vienna, Berlin, uh, uh, and Florence, uh, 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 and so forth, from the 1850s to the 1870s. And these great jamborees attracting hundreds uh, of statisticians from all over Europe were uh, uh, places where people often dedicated to social improvement and social change, uh, often civil service came together and they were international and they were universalist in that what they were actually trying to do, and this has a very contemporary ring to it, is set common standards for the collection of data, for the analysis of data, for its tabulation, for its publication, uh, just as we do today in lots of organisations run by the United Nations or the OECD, the Organisation of Economic Cooperation and Development and so forth. Lots of organisations are international and they seek to um, um, uh, universalize data and present it in a homogenous way. Uh, and then you can, as it were, compare and contrast across nations and across regions and so forth. Well, uh, that's a very modern idea, you might think. In fact, that's what many of these statisticians in different national communities were trying to do in the mid 19th century. And behind it, there was a profound commitment to 
to social reform, to using numbers productively, progressively uh, to understand social problems and then improve on 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 uh, uh, social institutions. Um, and this drew in lots of notable figures in British society. One who I write about in this context is the very famous uh, founder of nursing as a profession uh, for women, Florence Nightingale. But, but as I've said, uh, numbers are not uh, are not just uh, uh, units to be used on, on the liberal side of the debate. And in the later 19th century, you see conservative political uh, forces, political parties and institutions uh, using numbers themselves, uh, often for, if you like, anti-liberal ends. And it's very noticeable that the International Statistical Congress, which I've just uh, described, which tried to bring all of the data and all of the statisticians together, was effectively um, broken up by the behavior of Germany, the new German state under its chancellor, uh, Otto von Bismarck, in the 1870s. Bismarck was a profound social conservative. Uh, he was hostile to the sharing of German data uh, uh, with other bodies and with this uh, international um, uh, uh, constituency of, of statisticians. Um, and unfortunately, uh, Germany withdrew from this international collaboration and uh, with it uh, the collaboration itself collapsed. Um, and here one finds, if you like, a politics to statistics, uh, conservatives being suspicious of the ways in which liberal reformers would collect and use data and then themselves finding ways of using it uh, uh, to promote quite different uh, intellectual projects, indeed, to set out different ideologies. Uh, now let's talk about an infamous person who uh, uses statistics for the discipline of eugenics, uh, Francis Galton. I, I knew about him, but I did not know that he also revolutionizes statistics in some sense. Can you talk about him and how he revolutionizes statistics and, if, and how he employed it for the discipline of eugenics? Mm. Yes, it, it, Galton is uh, the the eminence grise, the uh, malign presence uh, in this book. Um, and he's a very complex figure, not easy to characterize, um, uh, not least because he's malign in many of his social uh, doctrines and ideas. And yet he's a very, very great genius. Um, Galton was, in fact, um, a man of letters. He studied mathematics in Cambridge, but he was a generation uh, younger than uh, the people we discussed earlier, people like Babbage and Hewell and Herschel. Um, he was at Cambridge in the 1840s, uh, fully 30 years uh, after them. Um, he was a gentleman of leisure, uh, you might say an independent intellectual, um, a traveller, uh, a geographer and so forth, um, who uh, became very interested um, in the human and societal uh, consequences of the ideas of his cousin, uh, Charles Darwin. And there's an interesting connection. Uh, uh, Francis Galton was Charles Darwin's cousin. Um, and uh, when Darwin published The Origin of Species in 1859, 
um, it was a kind of revelation to Galton. And it set him on an intellectual path that leads us into the dark heart of what's known as eugenics, the idea that it would be possible by selective breeding to uh, breed out uh, human um, uh, in imperfections uh, and congenital and genetic diseases and so forth, and focus on, if you like, the improvement of the race, uh, an idea, if you like, of racial hygiene, uh, which has had all sorts of very dark political implications uh, in the 20th century. It's been the underpinnings of ideas of racism, of anti-Semitism, uh, and indeed of, of extermination. Uh, so uh, eugenics, of course, is a very, very dangerous concept, uh, which has a very, very, I mean, in fact, these words don't do justice to the horror of these ideas. Um, and Galton is really the, the father figure of, of eugenics. Um, he takes the idea of natural selection and indeed the idea of artificial selection, uh, and he uses it to develop a new philosophy of society, the idea that it might be possible to breed, if you like, a super race uh, based uh, upon, you know, the, the, the selection of certain characteristics uh, that would uh, uh, favour uh, the development of these superior beings and the extinguishing uh, of uh, those and their characteristics um, who, who differ from, in various ways, uh, this kind of uh, perfect, perfect specimen. Um, he's fascinated by numbers. He's always been fascinated by numbers. He is a mathematician, Galton, um, and he applies numbers to all the social phenomena that he's interested in. He, he wants, if you like, a more rigorous uh, set of social disciplines to underpin his, his ideas. Um, and in the course of collecting data and struggling to, to understand it, um, he develops certain key techniques in uh, the discipline of statistics, the modern discipline that we all depend upon, notably correlation and notably also regression. Uh, and, you know, these are techniques that are used all the time, every day, all over the world for many, many different purposes. And if you engage in regression analysis, if you're involved in correlating different variables, in a sense, you are uh, a, a, a child of, of the re remarkable breakthroughs that Francis Galton made in the analysis of data, uh, developing these powerful techniques uh, for better analysis of numerical data. But uh, Galton is doing it in what we, and indeed many of his contemporaries saw, was a, a bad cause. One of the points I make in the book is, is that one, one needs to be aware of the limitations of eugenics, at least in Britain. Um, eugenics 
its history as an idea starts in Britain. There's no question about that. But its impact on British society and social policy is is very small. Uh, the British Parliament always um, objects to eugenical ideas being turned into legislation, um, although it's it, it's very common in the way people write and think uh, in the late decades of the 19th and the first decades of the 20th century in Britain, at least common among intellectuals. Uh, the actual impact of eugenics in Britain is, is relatively minor. It's much greater in America, in Germany, also in, 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 in Sweden. Uh, and the other thing, the point that I would make is that for uh, the very beginning of, of Galton's career as a eugenicist, so in the 1870s and the 1880s, he's largely ridiculed in the press and in journals and by others uh, who oppose his ideas um, and think of them as, as inhumane and think of him as a, a somewhat marginal figure. Uh, but it's at the end of the uh, 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century that the ideas begin to have more purchase in Britain and in Europe more, more generally. Uh, so uh, although some historians have presented him as a highly popular and personally very influential figure, I'm convinced that's not the case, in fact, uh, not until right at the end of his life uh, in the first years of the 20th century. But there's no doubt that eugenic ideas based upon um, Galton's new statistical techniques and his analysis of large data sets based upon human characteristics he either favours or he wants to expunge, it, there's no doubt that this complex social and mathematical world that he creates is, is highly influential and uh, certainly malign uh, in the 1930s and 40s. And uh, the st statistics in the 19th century, did it even try, did it ever try to address the uneven distribution of wealth in the Victorian society? And uh, there's another character, Charles Booth, who, who, who I think he decided to draw a statistical map of London, if I'm not mistaken. He went on a project which took a long time and, and the, the maps are available online and I've checked them out. They're really fascinating. Would be great if you could also talk about him in your response. Yes, it's a pleasure because in fact, uh, uh, my next big project is to write the biography of Charles Booth. Wow. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> it, it, it's something uh, uh, I've begun research and it's something I've always been interested in uh, and uh, his life, which is uh, more surprising than one might think, um, will form uh, the basis of a book I hope to come. Um, yes, the, the answer to your question is yes. Of course, one of the things we haven't yet discussed in any detail, but, but we must, is the way statistics were used throughout the 19th century to study poverty, to try to to understand the causes of poverty and the extent of it and do something about it. It was almost the first response of many social investigators from the 1820s and the 1830s onwards. They were fascinated by these transformations in British society, but they were also appalled by the, the levels of poverty in the new industrial cities. Um, and they wanted to use statistics as a way of, of analyzing and, and calibrating the degree of poverty. And then as it were thinking about solutions, at least drawing it to the 
attention of readers and indeed politicians uh, in Britain. So Charles Booth is part of a long tradition, uh, the Statistical Society of London and indeed the Manchester Statistical Society in the 1830s. They both, at the very initiation of their activities, go out and count poverty, ill health, disease, uh, lack of housing and so forth, all those social indicators of distress, they are very interested in and concerned about. Um, and of course, as I've suggested, uh, it's liberal reformers who are most evident in using statistics earlier in the century uh, to try to improve uh, uh, national life uh, in Britain. So Booth comes at the end of that tradition, or at least uh, he's part of that tradition, we might say. And in the 1880s, he begins to conceive of a great survey of, of London. Um, he's in fact a businessman, a ship owner, uh, a man with a conscience. He comes from Liverpool, another great industrial and mercantile city in the north of, of, of England. Um, he's very interested in, in social improvement. Uh, he has a social conscience, and I think he, he feels that if he sets up a research project based on his own money, um, he will be able to improve the lot of his fellow man and fellow woman, but also salve his conscience in some way uh, through uh, a project in in social science. And he um, organizes a, a team of researchers, many of them uh, highly distinguished. They were young people, but they go on to great distinction in British public life uh, after they serve their apprenticeship uh, for Booth. And they literally walk the streets of London, uh, collecting data, working in libraries and so forth, uh, and feeding him with data, which he turns into um, uh, uh, 17 volumes in the end, entitled The Life and labour of the people of London. And it's the first four of those volumes uh, published uh, really in the 1890s, the late 1880s, early 1890s, uh, that most readers and historians have focused on because they study poverty. They want to try to understand its distribution across London, uh, the reasons for it and the solutions to it. And you're quite right, uh, to draw attention to those uh, remarkable maps, everyone is fascinated by them, which divide uh, the districts of London into eight different social classes by colour. So you can look at a map of uh, uh, East or South London, and you can see the poorer districts, the middle class districts and the wealthy districts. Uh, I can tell your, your listeners that there's an annual Charles Booth walk in London, uh, in which uh, enthusiasts visit a part of London and follow in Booth and his investigators' footsteps. I've spoken at these events and one's coming up uh, in the middle of September next month and we're going to traverse East London, parts of East London, a very poor district in the 19th century, uh, 
and talk about Booth as we go. Uh, so there's, a f you know, he is a fascinating figure uh, and uh, someone who continues to have resonance uh, in in British society. And just one other fact, which is that uh, his research had many, many different implications and fed into many social policies. Uh, but uh, uh, today we look back on Booth as really the great advocate of an old age pension in Britain. Uh, pensions had been paid earlier in, in, in British history uh, to individuals. Uh, pensions as an idea were very strong in Germany a decade earlier in the 1880s when they were introduced. But in Britain, in the 1890s, Booth began to see that the great problem of poverty was exacerbated by old age. Uh, and he began to advocate for an old age pension. And uh, really, he's the man above all that we should look back to. Uh, one of the, as it were, nice outcomes of social research. And uh, one thing that I uh, that I didn't really associate with the statistics is is religious beliefs and you talk about the popularity popularity of statistics and whether it caused a decline in faith or not so that's uh, uh what i leave to you I, I think your argument is that as a matter of fact statistics provided more evidence for the existence of of, of an intelligent design in nature yes that's right well I, I perhaps am being a little controversial here, but <laughs> as I was working and collecting uh, material and evidence and indeed teaching in Oxford, uh, a course on Victorian ideas, which was very popular and uh, uh, certainly involved me thinking a lot about these questions, the place of God in Victorian thought. Uh, as I was doing all of this over the years, it, it appeared to me, perhaps counterintuitively, that actually the the study of statistics and the collection of data and the regularities that people saw in the data um, actually fed into uh, not the decline of faith, as most people think, but actually the the assertion of 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 Christian faith. Let me let me try to explain. Many historians uh, associate the rise of science, as we know, with the decline of of Christianity. I've mentioned Darwin, and uh, uh, there are many many other uh, uh, his, uh, scientists one could mention like this uh, who seem to show that uh, if you like nature doesn't need a god. Uh, there are plenty of other ways of explaining uh, the natural world, the cosmos, uh, according to physical and biological laws, uh, which don't require a first cause, a deity, a god in heaven. Um, and that uh, uh, has informed some of the ways in which historians have written about the rise of statistics. But actually, I was fascinated by the number of people in my story who had a profound faith. Now, it might not have been a very conventional Christian faith, but nonetheless, they were people of faith who believed, if you like, that uh, life was not random, uh, that life uh, was not without a kind of spiritual direction. Uh, some were indeed um, um, Orthodox Christians who went to church uh, every Sunday uh, and and believed uh, implicitly in the Bible. Um, others simply believed in a great creator. So Babbage, you see, is a very interesting case study. You might have thought that a great technologist, an engineer, a political economist, a mathematician, uh, uh, the man who perhaps most sums up early Victorian science, such a man would have little time for God, but actually he was a believer. 
in, you know, a divine force in in uh, the social as well as in the the natural world. Um, he never specified what he thought, and it clearly wasn't a conventional Christian God in the way that he might have said his prayers when he was a schoolboy or even a student. But nonetheless, uh, there is a, a strong sense of, of a deity controlling, uh, as it were, many of the aspects of our lives and certainly the natural realm in Babbage's writings. And this goes all the way through um, uh, to um, uh, someone like Charles Booth, who we were just discussing him. Booth, too, is not a conventional Christian. His wife is, he is not. And yet, if you look into his writings, his personal writings, there's a spiritual questing, a search for a spiritual force uh, that regulates uh, the world in which we live. And I think many of these people, it, it, precisely because they were finding uh, regularities, frequencies that could be extrapolated and so forth through the numbers, were aware that you know human life was not not random, uh, uh, that we might have free will, yes, but nonetheless, the balance of all these free wills comes out in certain recurrent patterns, uh, which you can find year on year, decade after decade. They were aware that, that life was not irregular, that there was a pattern to it. And I think for many of them, this confirmed a kind of faith, not, not a Christian faith, not a conventional Christian faith, but a kind of faith uh, that uh, a, a life, if not determined, was certainly not random. So as I say, this was not what I expected when I, when I started out. Um, and it's not what a number of historians have, have written, uh, but I think it, it, it's, it's interesting and it's the sort of subject that perhaps other people will take up and follow. And um, as a final question, uh, you know, these days we are fascinated with data, data, big data, artificial intelligence, and it's it's a huge factor in um, policy making and also in allocating uh, funding to different sectors, education sector, health sector. So do you think that this today's fascination with big data, predictive analysis and the statistics is sort of similar to the hype that was created in the 19th century? Yes, I, yes, I do. Um, but I'd say as a researcher that I have had to live through the digital revolution uh, and into the age of mass data, as you've described it, to understand what was going on in the 1830s. When I first came to this uh, as a youngster, I was fascinated by, by the attempt to collect this, this data and do something with it, but I didn't really have it in a proper perspective. And my initial articles were quite limited in their, in their, in their focus, uh, very much focused on the 1830s, not thinking about the bigger picture. But having lived through these transformations and uh, the 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 significance really of what many people call the age of data that we're now living in i understand better what was going on in the 1830s and historians like like to tell the world that there's no new thing under the sun uh, that everything can be found to have its origins deep in history and i'm afraid uh, in a rather clichéd way that's what i have been arguing in the book uh, i i bought, i i essentially argue that although we think this is an entirely new phenomenon uh, you can certainly 
trace it back to the early 19th century and arguably to the late 17th century with the rise, as we said, of political arithmetic and, and statistique in the German tradition. Um, I think there's another uh, revolution, intellectual revolution at the end of the 19th century, when uh, following Galton, people begin to understand much more powerful techniques for um, taking this data apart, analyzing it much more effectively. So there's a second revolution, data revolution, really from the 1880s and the 1890s. And now, um, really since the 1980s and the rise of a digital age, uh, I think we're we're living through yet another revolution, data revolution, uh, as we have the capacity now to collect data on a massive scale uh, and analyze it in ways that nobody could have dreamed of, with the exception of one man, and that man was Charles Babbage. I can enjoy how, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this conversation and, uh, just to put it into perspective for our listeners, I think we initially agreed to talk for about one hour, but I couldn't really skip the questions. And I, and we, I still had more questions to ask, but uh, unfortunately, we don't have enough time. I do strongly recommend this book to our listeners. It's a fascinating book, which has chapters. And, you know, you, you can, as you, we, we kind of covered throughout this interview, we talked about literature, we talked about Darwin, we talked about Charles Booth. We talk about faith, big data. So I guess there's every, every there is everything in this book to satisfy every kind of taste. And uh, I really enjoyed reading this book and talking to you. Thank you very, very much for uh, sharing your thoughts with us on New Books Network.